What is up, Vermont Edition podcast listener? This is Elodie Reed, digital producer for VPR. Just to let you know, this podcast has been edited for brevity and clarity. Enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Bob Kinzel. Well, there are a number of regions of Vermont that have their own fascinating historical stories. Sometimes these stories are well-known, sometimes they're not. In his new book, Hidden History of Franklin County, Vermont, historian Jason Barney explores more than a dozen economic, cultural, and military events that have taken place in the northwestern part of our state. Everything from nuclear missile silos in Swanton during the Cold War the impact of the Spanish flu in 1918, and some new insights about the St. Albans raid that took place towards the end of the Civil War in 1864. Jason Barney, welcome back to Vermont Edition. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me, and thank you so much for the kind uh, intro on the book. I appreciate it. Let me tell you a little bit about Jason Barney. He grew up in Franklin County, graduated from Missisquoi Valley Union High School in 1993, attended the College of St. Joseph's in Rutland. He has his teaching certificate. And then between 1997 and 2002, he was elected as a member of the Vermont House. That's when I got to know him. He served at the end as the vice chairman of the House Education Committee. Then he returned to what he describes as his real passion in life, teaching history at Missisquoi Valley Union High School. This is his second book. His first book, Northern Vermont in the War of 1812, was first published in 2018. Jason, tell us, what is it like teaching at the high school that you attended as a student? Um, it's perfect. Um, I really enjoyed my high school experience. Uh, I look uh, fondly uh, back on those days, and I can remember at the time loving the high school experience. And I also remember as a high school student uh, really enjoying history, uh, reading history books, um, bending the ear of my own history teachers. Um, and I just at the end of high school and into college uh, had made the choice to um, become a history teacher and to be able to um, teach history at MVU, um, kind of up in the northwest corner of the state of Vermont, um, it's a real treat. Um, Franklin County and, and Swanton have uh, an incredibly long history. And uh, to be a, a, a student at that school and then to be a professional at that school um, and being able to write books about this long history uh, and to teach um, some of that history in the classroom uh, is an amazing experience. So, yeah, I, I enjoy it, and uh, uh, several more years until retirement, so I'll be doing it for a while. What was it like teaching during the COVID pandemic? Uh, did you have a situation where you were teaching remotely or in person or a hybrid model? What was that like for you? Yeah, uh, this question will probably be a chapter in somebody else's book uh, in the in the future. <laughs> Um, so teaching during the pandemic was um, interesting, uh, frustrating, um, because I'm in the uh, school of thought as far as teaching goes that really uh, my job is about positive relationships with students. And to have the pandemic sort of limit the schedule quite a bit 
um, became problematic. So when the pandemic initially hit uh, last year, pretty much all the schools shut down um, and we tried to do um, some of the learning remote. Um, when we came back to school, the school had set up a system where uh, all of the adults coming into the building needed to check their temperatures before they entered um, the building. And then as students came in in the morning, uh, they had to go through that same process. Uh, our schedule was abbreviated. Um, we were in school on certain days of the week and out of school on other days of the week. Uh, I definitely uh, appreciated having students back in the classroom um, just to be able to uh, talk history with them and converse. Doing it over a computer screen um, is extremely difficult. And you know whether or not it's me or any other uh, professional, it's tough to hold the attention of a student or 20 students in a classroom for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, and to uh, have to go to remote, it was it was tough. So uh, at MVU, it was um, it was interesting. There were a couple of instances where um, people in the school had been identified as close contacts, uh, and I had to quarantine. Um, I got my vaccine as probably a little bit later than some teachers, but within the range of, of most professionals, um, and was happy to get the vaccine because, uh, you know, we're approaching the, the herd immunity. So it was, it was interesting, and all indications are that we're going to be back to a full regular schedule in the fall, which I will be thrilled about. I can imagine. I have to uh, think that teaching history in particular, being in the classroom with students, getting their reactions would be so much better than trying to do it through Zoom technology. Jason, you're also the head of the Swanton Historical Society. Are there some projects that the society is working on this summer? Um yeah, so like everybody else, the Swanton Historical Society basically shut down during the course of the pandemic. Um, we moved to having Zoom meetings, which was uh, somewhat successful, but uh, occasionally I had hiccups with the technology, so all of the rest of the members of the board were very forgiving. Um, but uh, one of the projects is actually something that um, could have made it into the book if I had a little bit more space, um, and it's the um, old Riviera Hotel, which is in town. It's a building which uh, is not in great shape today, um, but members of the Historical Society Board, I think, would be very interested in collecting some oral histories and to sort of try to document who worked at the hotel and uh, who, what local families may have had their wedding receptions there or other events. We have several pictures of the outside of the building. Uh, and, you know, even in 2021, uh, you know, you think students are distracted by their cell phones all the time or by their computers. But sometimes um, one of the joys of my local history class is just projecting some of the old black and white old photos in town and showing students what the town looked like 100 years ago or when um, photography was first starting to move into the area. So we have several pictures of that old hotel. And uh, I think our next program, um, once we're fully up and running again, will be to try to capture some of that old history of the uh, of the old Riviera Hotel. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Today in the program, our guest is historian 
historian Jason Barney. His new book is Hidden History of Franklin County, Vermont. We're just about to talk about some of the examples that he has in the book, some really fascinating examples, that uh, some that I knew about and some I didn't have a clue about. Uh, so it was a really fun read. Let's start with J.P., who is calling from Rutland. Hey, J.P., welcome to the program. Hi, thanks. Um, uh, I am um, one of the descendants of um, Joseph Wheeler, who founded the town of Fairfield in the county, as well as a number of other Vermont pioneer families who followed a sort of typical pattern of then moving west. Um, so uh, I'm a recent returnee to the state. I was curious if you knew or had mentioned Joseph Wheeler's story. Um, I don't have any uh, information uh, about that directly in front of me, um, but that's the sort of thing that uh, if you contact the Town Historical Society, or um, I don't know if you've had access to, I believe um, that town has a town history book, and you, you might be able to find some of the information uh, about the first settlers, including your family, uh, in that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I'm pretty sure I've had a look at the, at the book, and the Historical Society was de basically defunct as of a couple of years ago when I tried to track them down. Hmm. Yeah, when I was writing the book, uh, that was one of the historical societies that I visited, and I think they were in the process of moving and updating their property. Um, and I think mm -hmm. they're going to be in a I think they're going to be in a much better situation. Um, but um, I in encourage you to move forward with your research and. Um, Good luck with that, because it's a treat when you can find where uh, a family member may have lived uh, 200 years ago, you know, as, they, as the northwestern part of Vermont was being settled. Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to mention, it was sort of a typical story. He was born in Connecticut, went to western Massachusetts, south, southwest Vermont, and then ended up in Franklin, backed by, I believe, a syndicate of investors back in his hometown of Fairfield. Um, and then in his old age, moved west with uh, his namesake son. Um, um, well, JP, yeah, we Sorry. really appreciate your, your comments, JP. And I was going to just sort of point out to both JP and, and Jason, uh, from time to time, we've had Civil War historian Howard Coffin on the program, who's written five or six or seven books about Vermont in the Civil War. And it's always fun because people call up just like JP and actually give Howard new information. And I can see Howard putting it in his mind of, well, maybe that'll be part of uh, the next book that I write on. So uh, having this information from our listeners, I'm sure Jason really appreciates it. Uh, JP, thanks for your phone call. Jason, let's talk about the Cold War. Now, this was something I was unaware of uh, that I just find fascinating. Uh, if you go back to the early 1960s, there was a lot of tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. There was always this threat of nuclear war between the two countries. Now, in St. Albans, you describe something, a structure that folks call the big golf ball, which turns yeah. out to be a radar tower. And you describe the building of a nuclear missile silo in Swanton. Tell us yeah. about that. Um, so this is um, part of my writing, and it's, and it's part of the book. Um, so 20 years ago, uh, I may not have known much about that either. I mean, I certainly knew about the radar tower in town, but I didn't know about the nuclear missile silos. So um, I went to MBU, 
and I had some phenomenal history history teachers. Um, they were were great teachers, and and they were awesome in the classroom. Um, but these things were mentioned. So um, two people who I, I, I want to thank are um, Scott McLaughlin and Elise Gayette. Um, about 10 years ago, they had um, been the recipients of a Teaching with American History grant. And through that, they were um, intent on teaching local history and helping teachers um, find out about their own local history. Um, and that's part of the thread of how I was able to become published. So in one of the classes that they offered, uh, they came up with the idea of doing local field studies. And the local field studies hit on several of the towns in Franklin County. Uh, and one of the towns that they decided to give attention to was Alberg. And um, Scott and Elise, they had contact with the Alberg Historical Society. And what they had set up was to do basically a, a lesson plan for us where we went up to the Albert Historical Society, and uh, the Albert Historical Society has some great pictures um, from the 1960s of when an Atlas missile was flown into Plattsburgh, and then that Atlas missile um, was photographed as it was put on a special truck, and it was trucked over the old Missisquoi Bay Bridge, and the nuclear missile silo site in Albert is literally right in the village uh, near the present-day elementary school. Um, and through that, I started to dig through some of the newspaper stories at the time. And there was sort of a, the um, military or the locals at the time called it the Ring of Fire. There were uh, eight or nine, I believe, Atlas missile silos that were constructed as a defensive ring around Plattsburgh Air Force Base. And uh, through the research that Scott and Elise uh, provided to us, I came to learn that number eight or number nine was Swanton, Vermont. Um, and I knew that information a little bit. I had asked um, Scott and Elise if I could use their presentation and some of their materials um, in our U.S. History three classes at MVU. Um, and this is something that, that we talk about a little bit now. Um, I don't believe the Swanton Historical Society has any images of uh, the missile being trucked in, but as I've done research and as I wrote that chapter, um, and as I've just talked to some of the um, older folks in home, they have memories of that day. Um, and it's kind of neat to be able to tell the story of local connections with big events. But the Atlas missile silos uh, that surrounded Plattsburgh and the ones here in Alberg and Swanton, um, they were active during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there's a, a, a neat little sort of family story. Um, my Uncle Armin, uh, who is my godfather, um, was basically deployed at that missile silo in or around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I was doing the research, I found a newspaper story where uh, my Uncle Armin is, is quoted. Uh, and I was able to put that in the book. So, yeah, it's a it's a neat piece of history, um, and I think older folks are aware of this. But for uh, younger generations, you know, they can look at Kennedy and and hear speeches from Kennedy and and uh, learn about the Cold War, and they can come to learn that there are um, connections to that right in Franklin County, and, and the big golf ball at the top of Fairfield Hill is, is is the same thing. I can remember riding the interstate in the car with mom and dad. And uh, we would always refer to it as the big golf ball, but uh, used to be part of an Air Force base. 
and that was connected with uh, Plattsburgh as well. And uh, that was a radar tower or a radar system that would um, detect Soviet fighters uh, throughout the Cold War. So apparently there used to be six or seven of them at one point in time, but there's only one remaining. And so, Jason, people were aware at the time that there was an Atlas missile silo uh, up there and, and, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think there was some heightened anxiety that if we're about to go to war, uh, maybe being right next to this Atlas missile silo is not the best place to be? Um, yeah, I'm sure there was some of that. Um, but if you go to the um, local newspapers, newspapers.com is great. If um, people get an account to that, um, you can look through how the St. Albans Messenger or the Swanton Courier at the time, or even the Free Press, how they covered the uh, arrival of these massive war machines or this massive uh, war equipment into these small towns. And I think Probably the best characterization of the local response is or was that this was an opportunity for employment for locals. Uh, somebody had to construct those massive missile silos. Uh, they're, they're quite deep. They're seven or eight stories. Um, and somebody had to maintain them. So a lot of locals were employed when those projects were undertaken. And the, the irony is um, 1962 or 1963 is no different than today. Uh, technology often gets ahead of how you apply that technology. So the missile silos that surrounded Plattsburgh Air Force Base were only in uh, operation for just a couple of years, maybe four years. And then the technology had moved on and the U.S. had started to redeploy its nuclear arsenal to other locations to make it more mobile, including submarines. Let's talk to Mark in Bakersfield. Hey, Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for letting me on. Um, I worked during the early 80s at the missile silo in Swanton, and it wasn't the missile silo. It had been bought out by somebody else and had an opportunity a couple times to go down into the silo from a side entrance. And it it sort of, if you say seven stories, it had to be more than that. I'm I'm certain that Swanton Lime was built around the cement that went into that hole because it's huge. Um, But... uh, it's, I also Googled on Google Map um, the name of Missile Silo Road, and I found two or three others over in New York State. Uh, it's, it's interesting. As you say, it was around Plattsburgh, but it, they're all over the place. I had heard there was like 12 of them. But, yeah, um, so my understanding is that that project actually wasn't completed, uh, and part of that had to do with how quickly the technology was becoming uh, sort of obsolete. I think there were supposed to be two more that were going to be built in Vermont, um, but I'd have to check my sources on this. I believe one was supposed to be uh, located somewhere in the Georgia-Milton area, and I think one was going to be built somewhere in the islands. But, again, I'd have to check my sources. Um, but, yeah, it's um, it's a neat piece of history, and uh, I, you know, not that I want to take my students to a nuclear missile silo, but as far as uh, taking students on a field trip, I would love to be able to take them over to the area of Albert because MVU is not that far away, you know, and just be able to show them that local history and, and uh, kind of make the connections that, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis that those silos were operational. So, Mark, thanks very much for your phone call. In uh, his book, Hidden History of Franklin County, Vermont, Jason Barney talks about the silo being 180 feet deep. 
and 55 feet wide. So you're talking about a big silo going way down into the earth. Let's switch gears and, and talk about prohibition, Jason. Um, in 1919, Congress passes the 18th Amendment, which bans the sale of liquor in this country. Uh, the era of prohibition is pretty difficult to enforce, so we see in 1933 that Congress passes the 21st Amendment, which repeals the 18th Amendment. Now, when one thinks of bootlegging in this country that went on during the prohibition, I'm not sure Franklin County, Vermont, comes to mind as an active area. But it really is being right there on the border with Canada. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, so this was um, something that um, Ron Kilburn and I and other members of the Swanton Historical Society uh, we had done a presentation on um, a little while ago, and I, I kind of took some of the work for that and adapted it for the chapter in the book. But um, basically, uh, every state probably has its own individual history with trying to regulate alcohol. And I think Vermont's history with trying to regulate alcohol is is um, pretty nuanced. Uh, I understand that at different points in time, towns could have different local regulations, et cetera. So um, when you get to the end of World War One and you get to the um, era where they're trying to outlaw alcohol, it's um, interesting. If you go through some of the old newspaper accounts, very quickly you see examples of police officers um, starting to catch locals go to Canada um, because alcohol is still legal in Canada. And to come back over the border with uh, a couple of pints or a couple of courts. Um, and in some cases, these locals admit to doing it a, a couple of times a day. And there's instances where they're, they're caught uh, in, in Swanton, certainly, but definitely all throughout the county. Um, but then as time goes by, um, there's kind of a culture of um, supply and demand economics where mm -hmm. There is a lot of alcohol flowing over the border. Uh, and my research indicated that if guys were going over the border early in Prohibition and coming back with a bottle or two, um, by the time you get into the mid-1920s, um, they're bringing crates back with them in cars. And in many cases, the cars had been redesigned so that they could have hidden compartments. Um, and that chapter is one area of the book that uh, I, I wish I could have gone a little bit longer. Um, we were talking about capturing uh, stories of, of uh, folks who have been around for a while. Um, if, if you go to Franklin, if you go to Richford, if you go to Enosburg or Berkshire, if you talk to any of those towns along the border, there's local stories of uh, people basically hiding booze in barns uh, during the night and then waiting for organized crime to come and, and pick up the alcohol um, at a later date. So, yeah, it, it was pretty rampant. And some of the research that I did that uh, involved Lake Champlain for Prohibition was pretty interesting as well. But, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like the marijuana laws uh, 10 or 15 years ago. People had to make a choice, and some people just chose to ignore the laws. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how people feel about those laws. And so through your research, have, have you found some connections between organized crime and the bootlegging that was going on in Franklin County? Yeah. Um, so uh, my professors in college and then um, Scott and Elise, when I did the uh, Teaching with American History grant, 
you know, they always made the point, you just look at the facts. Um, and probably one of the stories which a lot of people sort of, I don't know if they have an emotional investment into it, but a lot of people um, talk about is the possibility that uh, Al Capone could have um, been up here in Franklin County and been in communication with his thugs as alcohol was coming over the border. The, the specific rumor or the specific story is that Al Capone may have uh, spent the night in the Highgate Manor or visited the Highgate wow. Manor. Um, I, the manor is an old, uh, old building uh, in Highgate. It's, it's beautiful. Um, at different times, it's been abandoned, and at different times, it's been repaired. But I think a lot of locals are aware of that story. So as a historian and as somebody who relies on facts, um, I don't know if he um, spent a night at the manor, but I doubt it. Um, my own personal impression is that uh, Al Capone was probably heavily involved in making sure that large amounts of alcohol made it over the border. But for him to come to Highgate or Franklin, um, it's possible, but chances are he would have paid thugs to make sure that that work got done rather than putting his own uh, neck out there. So, so that's one sort of rumor that, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people tell. And something, you know, another historian may be able to find documentation of that, but uh, I certainly haven't found it yet, and I have to just rely on the facts. So, that's a fascinating story if that's true. Let's talk to Matt, who's calling from Winooski. Hey, Matt, welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, like, sure. Like many, I guess, in Franklin County, Jason and I have some intertwined family and personal history. But I'm calling with, uh, with two less esoteric questions. Um, first, where and when is the book available? Um, so it's available online uh, through Amazon and the History Press's website. Um, and it's uh, available at um, the local bookstores. I believe Barnes & Noble has copies. Uh, Phoenix Books may have copies uh, up here in St. Albans. Uh, I've done two book signings at the Eloquent page, um, and uh, they've, they've gone pretty well. So um, it's it's out there. Great. Awesome. And then second, Jason, can you um, – maybe you can. I don't know. Can you shed any light on the Chester A. Arthur Berther conspiracy theory? Oh, um, so the uh, birthplace of Chester uh, A. Arthur is mentioned in the book, but that was something that I chose not to tackle. Um, my own education is that he was likely born very close to the border, but um, was probably born here in the States. Uh, that's something that I haven't researched a, a lot of, um, but who knows? That may be something that, uh, that uh, gets some future in, in the future. Matt, thanks very much for your phone call. Another fascinating uh, topic that would, that's worth a lot of research. Jason, let's switch gears, talk about Franklin County during World War I. Uh, it's a war that the United States enters in 1917. And in Swanton, Vermont, there's a very important gun factory, the Remington Gun Factory, that actually employs up to 500 people. And in that time, that was a lot of people. Why is this factory so important? Well, so World War I is certainly uh, an interesting uh, time period to study. There are uh, a lot of people who think that World War I is actually a much more significant conflict than World War II. And it was just a treat to research some of the local aspects of that. So here in Swanton, uh, there are a couple of buildings 
they're not in the center of town, but they're they're pretty close. Um, it's on Robin Hood Drive, and everybody uh, refers to that as the old ammunition plant. And in that era, there were a couple of other um, arms production facilities to support the war effort. And uh, there actually was some concern that there may be German uh, saboteurs that were coming from the Canadian border, coming over the Canadian border. So uh, the Vermont National Guard gets called up, and I believe it's Company B is um, scheduled to patrol the area of Swanton. And their primary focus is to um, kind of alleviate the population on the border that the military is available. But they're also making sure that those uh, arms-making plants are uh, protected. And some of the research that I uncovered, there were um, definitely some unfortunate mishaps between uh, some of the individuals who were uh, assigned up here where uh, a firearm discharged or uh, somebody was injured. And uh, yeah, throughout World War One, they were uh, patrolling up here. And then when the war ended, it was mostly local boys, so they just went um, home afterward. But uh, a neat little connection with that is the story of Corporal Lord. Uh, the Vermont National Guard actually reached out to Swanton uh, a couple of years ago. And um, Corporal Lord, I believe, was the first Vermonter killed uh, over in France during World War One, And they wanted to go through the ceremony of um, making sure that the the, the gentleman got his due credit after the fact. So the Vermont National Guard and the governor, they actually came up and they did a, a, a ceremony here in Swanton where Corporal Lord got his uh, got the appropriate medals. So it was a, a neat thing to write about. The Remington Gun Factory is very important to the United States military in 1917. Was there some concern up in Franklin County that some German spies might sneak over the Canadian border and try to blow the place up? Yeah, I mean, if you um, think of Franklin County's history, um, you have to go back to the St. Albans race, and it had happened, you know, 50 or 60 years before. So um, the point of having the company stationed in Swanton was to try to make sure that the ammunition plants were safe. Now, later on, um, I believe it's the Remington, there's an accident there where some uh, locals are killed, and a, l- a lot of women were employed in that plant. And one of the things that has been captured in the Swanton History books, and one of the things that the Swanton Historical Society, uh, I believe, has files on, is, are the families who worked at those plants at that time. And I believe some of the families are still local, and um, you can uh, sort of pick their brains about what their uh, family members told them over the generations about what happened during World War One. Today in the program, our guest is historian Jason Barney. Our phone number, 1-800-639-2211. His new book, Hidden History of Franklin County, Vermont. We're going through some of the examples in the book, which are really fascinating. Let's talk to Al, who's calling from Whitehall. Hi, Al. Welcome to the program. Good morning. I, I tuned in late, but I heard uh, a little bit of the segment uh, regarding Al Capone. And uh, when I was a child, uh, I had uh, uh, a great uncle in Putnam, New York, uh, who was a farmer, and he used a welding shop in Ticonderoga. So as a child, I met the, the uh, gentleman that was the welder and uh, quite a craftsman and uh, 
uh, artisan in his own right uh, with a handmade forge. He did all kinds of things. But he catered to the farmers and to the loggers in the area, and everything would stop for uh, the repair on a child's bicycle. And when the repair was done and the kid would ask, well, how much is this going to cost me? He'd say, well, don't worry, uh, I will be uh, charging it to this man who's standing there waiting for an hour. (laughs) But uh, he and his father were millwrights and wheelwrights, and they did the the, uh, uh, alterations on all the brand-new cars that Capone bought from a dealership in Hague, New York. And they were sent to him to put all heavy-duty suspension and re-alter the trunk and the back seat so they could be used to carry a tremendous amount of liquor from Canada uh, down through to New York City. Yeah, uh, Al, that's, that's a fascinating history. Yeah, there's no question that organized crime was involved, uh, and they get more involved uh, as they're making more money during that prohibition era. Um, if you go through some of the old St. Albans messengers, uh, the uh, amount of alcohol that is seized, uh, whether or not it's on ships that are on the lake or the volume that's in some of these cars. Uh, in the research that we had done um, just in Highgate and Franklin, I think there were more than eight or nine sort of, you know, we think of the border now, there's border crossings and border station and, and border patrol. But in 1927, no, that's not the case. So a lot of these cars that had been specifically rebuilt to hide alcohol, uh, it was very difficult for the limited number of Border Patrol operators at the time to try to stake out all of those positions. So every day, every night, there would have been uh, alcohol coming over the border. Let's talk to Uh, Don, who's calling from Montreal. Uh, Yes, hi. Uh, My question is more to uh, the questioner. Uh, A couple of minutes ago, you were talking about um, the spies crossing the border going after the rifle factory. Um, the states were in the First World War, April 1917. Canada was in August 1914. So just the whole idea of asking a question like German spies crossing the Canadian border doesn't really add up. Well, so, but the, the documentation as far as um, putting uh, Company B on the border, uh, they, they put it there for a reason. Uh, now, whether or not, um, you know, in 2021, you and I or, or anybody else can reasonably have a conversation uh, about whether or not that was necessary, um, you know, that, that's a good question to ask. But they were specifically deployed up here to protect those plants just in case something uh, along the lines of a German saboteur um, did happen. And, Don, what were your thoughts? We were just talking about bootlegging uh, during the Prohibition and how the openness of the Canadian border made that possible for organized crime in the United States. Uh, Any thoughts about that? Well, it's a two-way street. It was open on the Canadian side, and it certainly was open on the American side. That uh, You know, there's a buyer and a seller, and uh, that went right across uh, the Canadian-American border from east east coast to west coast. Lake Champlain was uh, a very good spot to, to do the business. That's right. Don, thanks for your phone call. We really appreciate it. Let's talk to Bruce, who's calling from Rutland City. Hey, Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you. My question was, my mother grew up in Swanton, and my grandfather was part owner of Swanton Lumber Company. And Hmm. Don, I know my mother donated uh, a tremendous amount of material to the Swanton Historical Society. 
And there was talk at one time of doing an oral history. I just I wonder if that was ever done. I know she did an oral history for the Northfield Historical Society. For uh, <clears throat> My grandmother uh, grew up in Northfield, and so she gave them a lot of material and did a history. I just wondered if they did the same for Swanton. So um, my understanding is the best source uh, for the oral histories is the Vermont Folklife Center, or it was at one point in time, and I think they have been up um, to do oral histories in town uh, once, but I think that predates my association with the Vermont Historical, or with the Swanton Historical Society. But your point on oral histories is um, is really valuable, and if I can tell sort of two stories just with the creation of, of my material. So um, in the book, there's a chapter on some of the old uh, movie theaters, some of the first movies that were shown uh, throughout Swanton and St. Albans. And um, just through the Swanton Historical Society, um, one of the members uh, heard that I was working on the book and was aware that there was going to be a chapter on the movie theaters. And uh, he called a friend who was from Enosburg, who lived in upstate New York, uh, Teresa Benoit Carmen. Uh, and she was very sweet. She was very nice. Um, she actually had some of the old playbills uh, that had um, been part of uh, what they call the old Richford drive-in. And um, she and I spoke on the phone. She was very nice. She sent them to me and said I could use them, and a couple of them ended up in the book. Um, this, the, the sad thing about that is uh, my understanding is she passed um, shortly before the book came out. Um, and uh, that, that's just an example of the sort of value that you get either from an oral history or, or talking to the um, the elderly folks in your community. Another example would be um, when I was doing some of the research for the Franklin Commune, um, I was trying my best to reach out to a lot of the members of the commune. Uh, that's 1970, 1971. Uh, Vermont was a, a huge area for the county counterculture in the early 1970s. And one of the individuals... Um, I think the first individual who agreed to an interview was a gentleman by the name of Charlie Pratt. Uh, and I, I called Charlie. I had some tech difficulties, unfortunately, the first time, but he said, uh, call back. And when I had my tech taken care of, he'd, he'd gladly chat. And uh, he let me know at the time that his health was in decline. Uh, and I recorded that interview with him. And then uh, he passed away shortly afterwards. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of value to oral histories, and um, it's really, really important to try to record those stories. Let's turn to Alan, who is calling from Shelburne. Hey, Alan, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I used to live in Swan, and there's so much more history that I'm sure the book covers, like the, the marble quarries. But I wanted mm-hmm. to mention a couple of things. Um on the way near where the Missisco Wildlife Res- Res- uh, Wildlife um, Place headquarters used to be, um, there were a couple of digs alongside that road by archaeologists looking for um, Indian traces and finding lots of things. And I stopped and talked to some of them one day. And then further on that road, where they redid the approach to one of the bridges um, going over the lake, um, they discovered an Iroquois lo- longhouse, which they were stunned. Uh, they were pretty sure it was a longhouse, and it was the furthest east they'd ever found in Iroquois Loghouse. So I was longhouse. So I was wondering um, if you touch on the Native Americans in your in your history of the county. Yeah, it's the first chapter, uh, and it's something that I teach in great detail uh, at the Abnaki and Local History course at MBU. 
and uh, that history um, is sort of progressing in the sense that at one point in time, I think Abnaki history was something that wasn't talked about, uh, and it, it, it did sort of remain history, or, or did remain hidden. Um, I think the Abnaki are going sort of going through sort of a cultural revival now. Um, I took some of my students to that archaeological dig, and uh, yeah, the, the the work that they have done on uh, by the Missisquoi River in Swanton is fascinating, um, and the the wildlife refuge itself is property that is. Uh, very strongly linked to uh, the history of indigenous peoples, and uh, yeah, it's the first chapter of the book, and it was a it was a joy to write. Alan, thanks very much for your phone call, Jason. Just following up on uh, Alan's thread, you know, certainly uh, a lot of history books will tell us that European explorers discovered quote unquote this part of the world in the 16th and 17th centuries, but you point out that this region had been settled for thousands of years by the Abnaki and that they had developed a very sophisticated agrarian society long before the arrival of the Europeans. You know, at the beginning of your book, you have a quote that says, how the present hides the past. Is this a good example of that? Oh, yeah. Um, so later on today, um, my wife and I will probably be going for a walk on the Missisquoi Wildlife Refuge. Um, and as you're walking on those trails, you know, whether or not it's 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, um, this area up here in Swanton was settled by the Abnaki or the groups that eventually would become the Abnaki uh, through time. And if you go through some of the old newspapers, if you um, just talk to locals from, you know, take into account family stories, there's several, uh, there, there's hundreds of arrowheads or shards of pottery or stories of uh, the Abnaki inhabiting uh, this area and up by the wildlife refuge. And uh, it's, um, it's something that I try to uh, bring up in my classes. The caller had mentioned the uh, longhouses, but one was found um, across the Cisco Bay Bridge area in Alberg, and then there was another one that was found right um, in the area of the old wildlife refuge headquarters building. Uh, and when they found it, when they did the dig, there's um, they believe that they had actually found the uh, the remains of the post molds of that structure still in the ground. And when they uncovered larger parts of the dig, you could you could actually see. Uh, what is the outside of that building and the curvature of that building as well. So, yeah, Abnaki or uh, indigenous uh, presence up here in northwest Vermont is uh, is very, very old. Let's get a quick call in from Duncan, who's calling from Johnson. Hi, Duncan. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Um, hi, Jason. I just wanted to uh, touch briefly on, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but um, I, for a while, owned and operated a blacksmith and welding shop at 21 First Street. It's no longer that in Johnson. It was Gagne's welding shop before that, and uh, it burned, is my understanding, the shop. But but prior to that, it had been a blacksmith blacksmith shop um, going back uh, many, many years. So just wanted to relate that. Uh, it's it's not covered in the book. Um, there were a new, there were numerous instances where I wanted to uh, really delve into a history of a specific area, 
Um, but very early on in the process, the history press let me know that my word limit was going to be about 40,000 words. So through that, I was going to get um, about 19 or 20 chapters. Each chapter could be 1,500 words to 2,000 words tops. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of history that uh, unfortunately still remains hidden and uh, I wasn't able to uncover. Duncan, thanks for your phone call. Jason, we're almost out of time, but do I understand, are you at work on a third book now? Yeah, so um, the next book is going to be on um, Northern Vermont and the American Revolution. Uh, my first book was on uh, Northern Vermont and the War of 1812, so I'm doing a little bit of uh, time travel. Um, I, I've signed the contract for that book, and that's part of the project that I'm working on uh, this summer. Uh, I'm working with the Vermont Archaeology Society, and uh, a group of teachers are, uh, unfortunately, virtually, um, going to be visiting some of the Revolutionary War sites that are here in Vermont. Uh, and I know a lot of politicians, and I know a lot of people like to quote the Founding Fathers, but as a local history teacher, it is a treasure to be able to teach that um, a lot of stuff from the American Revolution didn't happen just down in Lexington and Concord or in Saratoga, and not only down at Fort Ticonderoga, but a lot of it happened up here in the, in the uh, northwestern section of the state of Vermont. Well, Jason, let us know when that book comes out so we can get you back on the program. A lot of interest for our listeners in talking to you about the history of Franklin County. The book is called Hidden History of Franklin County, Vermont. It's a fascinating read that will tell you some amazing things about Franklin County. Jason Barney, many thanks for being on the program today. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it.